Well, amen. Years ago, many, many years ago, there was an Indian teacher from the nation of India who, uh, his name was Meher Baba, and he gained a global audience with his odd brand of Eastern mysticism. He taught that the universe is an illusion, that we are all but figments of an imagination of some distant, unknowable, higher power. He self-proclaimed himself the avatar of the age, and though he was a teacher who gained global acclaim, a global audience, he didn't speak with words. Allegedly, apparently, for the last 40 years of his life, he never spoke a single word. He would communicate using hand gestures. Some of you probably did that on your way to church today. He communicated using hand gestures and moving an alphabet board and then some cables for his distant followers. Never spoke a word, but he taught this, that again, that the, the universe is an illusion, that we're figments of somebody's imagination. And he had a maxim in life that became globally popular. It, it went like this. Uh, nothing is real, so nothing should trouble you. That's pretty good, isn't it? Like, I want to buy into that. That'd be easy, right? Just kind of fall back in that. Nothing is real, so nothing should trouble you. That phrase was made even shorter and more simple, and it became um, four words from him that everybody in the room has heard. Don't worry, be happy. And an American man named Bobby McFerrin, some of you know who are children of the 80s, shout out to you. And the children of the 80s know that Bobby McFerrin took these four words, don't worry, be happy, and made it into a power ballad. It had this a breezy reggae calypso rhythm to it. He had this Caribbean accent and a, just a breezy melody. He dubbed for instruments his voice. It was, it became in the, the mid to late 80s, it became the number one, in fact, the first a cappella song that ever smashed number one on the Billboard's Hot 100. And it, was, it showed up in the 80s, some of you know, really everywhere. I mean, you heard it in television and movies, uh, on college campuses, in middle school, glee clubs. It, was on, uh, it, it even became part of a presidential campaign and was adopted in Jamaica as the official national anthem as people were reeling from the after effects and recovering, uh, surviving from a hurricane known as Gilbert. Now, a simple song with a simple philosophy, and a workable strategy. When you hear that song, don't worry, be happy, and I would sing it for us, but you know, I'm on the clock. But when you hear that song, it takes you away somewhere, doesn't it? For more modern listeners of music, it would be like a Kenny Chesney or Zach Brown band kind of song. It transports you somewhere on a coastal island. There's water lapping at your feet, or tropical breezes and orange sunsets, and you want that that life philosophy, those simple four words of that song to truly be a workable strategy. Don't worry, be happy. But then you wake up to reality or you live a little bit and you realize that's not a workable strategy. It's a simple song to sing and it's fun that it's a cappella because you think you're hearing instruments, but it's the dude's voice. But it doesn't work in life because you realize, you realize that life is not an illusion and don't worry is not that easy to manage. Another leader who was religious, who saw a light on a road, it was a dramatic experience and one heck of a turnaround. Don't you love turnaround stories? There was a leader named Paul who used to be Saul, and he wrote a letter long ago. And in this letter, he says, rejoice. In Philippians 4, 4, he says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice in the Lord always. And if we're not careful, 
as you grow, as you age, it's easy to think those words could be like the other words. Don't worry, be happy. It's just kind of empty. Simple song, cute, airy, and breezy. It transports you for a moment like a drug can, but it's not a workable strategy for life. And Paul set some great things before us in this letter written long ago in Philippians. And we're walking through it a little bit, not verse by verse, phrase by phrase, but we're kind of looking at some of the big, beautiful things that are said in this letter in week one. And by the way, this letter coincides, I believe, very strongly with our values as a church, gospel, community, and mission, gospel enjoyment, intentional community, and prayerful mission. And here we see week one, two weeks ago, we looked at Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. God is a finisher. What he starts, he finishes. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the perfecter. He's the author of your faith and the perfecter of your faith. He is a finisher, and God will finish the work. And it relieves us, those of us in Christ, those of us, with the faith in Him, it is a great reliever. In fact, it's a joy producer in us. It is in me personally. I just shared with you a couple of weeks ago my own story. It is gospel enjoyment in my life to know that I am, that He's not finished with me. I'm a work in progress, and God knows you are. But God is patient, and He's working in me to bring about what He wants me to do, what He wants in me, and so I can stand firm in that. I enjoy the gospel because I can be sure of this. And in week two, last week, we jumped into Philippians chapter two, and we did a little bit of history lesson. If you were here, you probably fell asleep. Most people did last week, but we looked at this a Roman colony. We looked at the city of Philippi. We talked about Alexander the Great. We talked about Philippi II being the king. We talked about his son, Alexander the Great. We talked about gold, and we talked about how that Philippi was in, a, in Macedonia, but it was a Roman colony, and citizenship in Rome, I almost cussed, citizenship in Rome was a big, big deal. It really mattered. There was a strata. There was a hierarchy. The, the clothes that they wore, the offices that they sought, the feast and the festivals and where they sat in the synagogue, people knew who was in the Senate. They knew who was in the equestrian. They knew who uh, was a freedman or a slave. And you were known. They've excavated this city of Philippi, now in modern-day Greece. And they have seen that by people's title, it would have your name and it would have you labeled what you were even before your name. And into this, into this, Paul uses a word to the church at Philippi that you would never use. They would never use uh, in that colony at that time. He says, I am a slave. I am a slave of a rejected slave. And he says, I love this. I love this about the brilliance of the Bible written so long ago in this letter Paul knew then what social scientists and researchers and experts are coming to conclude now. He knew that if you go for happy, happiness is an illusion. If your goal is happiness, if that's what you're striving for, I just want to be happy, guess what? You won't get it. But if happiness is a byproduct of discovering meaning, then you're likely to get it. And Paul says, in an era in this Roman colony of cursus honorarium was the Latin phrase, climbing the ladder, the race 
for the climb, the race for honor. In this culture of honor, Paul is saying it is those who stoop. It is those who live in humility. It is those who have the same mindset of Jesus who will find joy because they won't put their self first. Joy and happiness comes by finding a mission, something bigger and better than yourself. Isn't that kind of cool? Just let that, some of you are, are, are awake right now and you feel that, right? Isn't that cool what was written so long ago they're finding to be true, like all the experts are finding to be true now. Happiness, as we understand it, is an illusion. There's something paradoxical about it and that's what we find in Philippians 2. Hey, have this same mindset to be an intentional community, to live as followers of Jesus, that we subjugate ourselves the church should not be another place where people climb the ladder. It's a place where people stoop and where we learn to serve and put other people first. And in this, we find joy. Philippians 2, have this mindset in you that was also in Christ. And we're partakers, we're partners, we're fellowship. We have the same mindset where we have fellowship in His sufferings. Let's be real about life and how difficult it is. And so to that, today, we come to this, this longing and this looking for joy. I want to say as we start, I want to, especially for note takers or even picture takers, you can pull out your phone and uh, take a shot of this, but I want to say three things to you. We'll put them up one at a time. The three important points when it comes to joy this morning. And the first is this, I can't grab hold of joy today because I can't let go of the pain from yesterday. Picture Picture you with me on the stage now. That would be terrifying for most of you, but you're standing right here with me and you're holding an old, ugly ironing board. And I'm standing here with a surfboard. And the surfboard has a card on it, and in the card there is a free trip on me to San Diego. Round-trip airfare, deluxe hotel accommodations. And I tell you, hey, take the surfboard and take this trip. You would go for it, wouldn't you? But you know, in order for you to grab the surfboard, what would you have to do? You would instinctively, intuitively grab, let go of your old ugly ironing board in order to grab the surfboard and go to San Diego. And what's true there with you on the stage with me and two boards is true of your life and your past and your present. Do you know anybody that's just full of joy? I was thinking about this this week, this morning, in fact, as I, as I was praying. The joy is a command. We choose joy. The feelings will follow, but according to Scripture, joy is a choice. It's a decision that you make. You owe it to the people around you to be joyful. Think of the most joyful person that you know. Hopefully, you can think of somebody. And that person that you think of, don't you know they bring life and energy? They just breathe they breathe vitality when, in, into you and others when they're in the room. Think of them. Now think of somebody that's the most joy-impaired person that you know. They're negative and irritable and they're bitter and they suck life out of you. Think of that person. Don't look at them. Don't poke them. Just, just think about them, okay? Joy. Look, look, I was just thinking about this. Maybe this is just for me. Maybe this is a RG and God thing. But like people in my life, like I owe it to them to be joyful. I was talking to a young lady this week, and she was talking up in the staff office. She was talking about her dad and when her dad used to sing. She remembers mornings when her dad would sing around the house, and that meant her dad was in a good mood. And you know this, right? You know that when a dad is singing, that can be a really 
good day. It can light you up, right? And certainly the opposite is true. But you owe it to others around you to have joy. But you can't grab hold of joy today because you can't let go of the pain from yesterday. And here's what I believe. Do you agree with me? Everybody, second idea, everybody, everybody in this room and everybody has something from their past that they can't seem to get past. Think about you. Privately, of course. But I want you in a minute, in fact, I'm going to draw something in a few minutes from now, but I want you to think of that thing because we're going to go back to that thing. But what is it from your past that you can't seem to get past? It could be that divorce. It could be that relationship that broke up. It could be that parent who didn't equip you to live but wrecked you to live. It could be that bad business deal or that boss or business partner that gave you a raw deal and you are bitter. You can't get past that. It could be an opportunity that you didn't take and you torture yourself daily. Oh, if only, if only I had taken that job. If I only had married that person. If only I had not married that person. If only I had gone to this city. If only I had stayed. If only, and you torture yourself with it. With it. It's a missed opportunity that you had. What is it for you? Think of it. Think of it for you privately. Third thing I want to say is this. You'll never navigate your present with joy if you don't learn how to navigate your past with grace. If that's needed. It's needed. Can I say today, I pause because I want to hug some of you. Grace. It's what we preach. We spit it sometimes. It's important. What if our church was not known as a place of judgment, but a place of joy? And we won't know joy unless we know grace. Our God releases. Our God forgives. Our God lifts up. He does. Do you know that today? Look, if you don't, this is a routine. I'm glad you're here, but this is a ritual. It's empty. It's just a routine, right? I hope I'm entertaining today. But if you know this release, if you know grace, if you can look at your past and see grace, you can know joy in the present. And this is God's great and deep desire for us. So the question that we need to ask ourselves, and let me say this, backing up just a little bit. Most of us cannot get past something from our past you've identified what it is for some of you it's super easy for others of you you got to jog your mind a little bit and isolate select something but this thing from your past you lug it around with you you want to fall asleep at night but you drag it with you you wake up in the morning and you drag it with you you go to work and you take it with you you go on vacation and you bring it there. You move to a new town with a fresh start and a clean slate, and you take it with you there. And you need to ask yourself the question, I ask it to you now, do you want to keep doing this? In order to experience present joy, you have to look at the past and know His grace. Philippians chapter 3, that's where we are, verses 
12 and 14. We're going to read it together. Some of you love to open the Bible that you brought with you or to grab one. By the way, you can steal those Bibles in the pew. They are yours for the taking if you need a Bible. Uh, unless it says Woodland Hills Baptist Church, then we've just uh, per- perpetuated a crime there. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Here's Paul picking up kind of mid-thought, mid-sentence. He says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Let me hit the pause button. I like to do this. Isn't that kind of cool? Just keep the verse up there because later on you're going to look at Philippians 4 and Paul says, hey, the things that you have heard in me, the things you've seen in me, the things that, uh, that, that I tell you, put these things into practice. Now that's a leader saying, follow me. That's a leader. Now if you're a leader, you're a parent, you're a teacher, you're a coach, you're a pastor. If you're on staff here or serve as a deacon or an elder, you ought to, to some extent, be able to say that. The things you see in me, put those into practice because you're a leader. But at the same time, it brings me a breath of freshness to realize that Paul, the same guy that can say the things you see in me put in practice, he's also saying, hey, I haven't arrived. I am not perfect, but... I'm not going to let my imperfection, I'm not going to let the things that hold me back really hold me back because I'm going to press on. And he says this, because, not for anybody else or for himself, but because Christ Jesus had made me his own. The gospel enjoyment frees him up. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. There's more to go. But one thing I do, circle that, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. But one thing I do. What's the one thing? Paul is saying that I'm not going to let the stuff in the past interfere with the work that God wants to do in my life today. I'm not going to let back there totally mess up right here. The guiding force of my life is going to be the power of God, not the power of the past. This one thing. Susan and I, we know, uh, we have a good friend, we know a woman, who, man, I'm telling you, her background is like a bad movie. And everything that could go against her, it seemed like it did. A really bad lifetime movie. And As a little girl, she was neglected. And the neglect exacerbated to the point of abuse. And it was ugly. There was verbal and physical assaults. There was promiscuity and substance abuse. There was chronic meltdowns. And if anybody that Susan and I know in our circle of friends should be an emotional zombie among the walking wounded, it is this woman. Yet she is not. And I do not, I am not sorry for the superlatives I'm about to use in describing her, but she is a fantastic mom. She's an amazing wife. She is a super friend. She is a follower of Jesus, and she has joy. And if you ask her what got her there, she would say, like Paul, this one thing. Years ago, she decided to adopt a couple of kids in addition to her biological kids. She determined that she wanted a couple of kids out there who would have been in a bad story have the chance to be 
in part of a good story. And she had this unshakable just conviction, this steely resolve that she would not let sin and darkness win. That the evil that she had to face would not ultimately triumph over her. This one thing. Paul is saying, and some of you know the story, some of you know his background. It's not squeaky clean. It was tough. And he says, this one thing. And the phrase, this one thing, it implies effort with every cell of my body. He is saying, I am working this thing out. Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work on it. God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. But he says, work it out. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, 28 and following, he talks about how we agonize to present every person mature in Christ. There is effort and there is intention. This one thing implies effort and it implies passion and focus. Can you think of anything in your life where you're now saying this one thing. Earlier this week, I was at a, a mall. I probably shouldn't admit that. But I was at the outlets of Mississippi over there in Pearl. And I know most of you, I guess it's not cool to go to malls anymore, right? Amazon is r- ruling the world. But I was there and I noticed um, a real um, upscale vehicle with a dog um, in it and it was alone and there was no air condition running. And you guys know that I love dogs more than, more than people. And so I, I made my way around and I got out of the vehicle aware that someone could be aware of me judging them, aware that the AC could be running, but I noticed that the floppy ears of the dog were not flopping, and so I got close to the vehicle just to make sure before I sent someone to jail that the, there was no air conditioning, the car wasn't running. And so I made sure that the, the cops were alerted and that someone made their way there. And I, I made the phone call, I, I alerted mall security, uh, Kevin James, and uh, from, yeah, and I, I got Kevin to show up, and I thought, yeah, he's just mall security, so I made sure we called the cops. But I, I circled around several times to make sure they were attending to the dog and getting the dog out of the vehicle. For that moment, I got some text. I had somewhere I needed to be. I was going to be late for something. But I, in that moment, I thought, this one thing and nothing else mattered. A couple of months ago, when I was on bended knee with a Bible open, praying about the series I was preaching called Fear, and I was just reduced in size because I thought, I am afraid of something. And I would, have t- I would tell you that God was laughing at me, but He's not that kind of God, but I think He was stirring something up in me and revealing to me that even though I'm preaching on fear, I'm really afraid to embrace the future that God has for us. And I shared with you briefly, it was an extemporaneous moment, but I talked about the gym that a couple of years ago was granted to Fondren Church in our back parking lot. And how because of um, other things here that we sort of have not been able to overcome our inertia, we're using it, and it's been a thing of blessing, but it's not living up to to its potential. And a lot of it was just, just, we're just lacking a leader, a leader that will cast a vision, a leader that will call forth resources. And one day, quickly, extemporaneously, I mentioned that in a sermon. And two people here responded with very generous gifts. 
And so we have gotten started. I don't know if you know Mariah Carver. She's on our staff team. She is an excellent employee, a very engaging person. She's overseeing the project. And we've knocked down, not the whole gym, but one room there, a kitchen and a community room. And we've knocked down all the exterior walls. And a couple of guys were here all week working to polish. You know those uh, concrete polished floors that are all the rage, that are beautiful and shiny but durable? And I really believe that God is calling us to use our gym and to open up this kitchen and to feed kids in the neighborhood. It's not for our church. It's for the neighborhood. And there are kids who don't eat when, when they don't go to school. There are, there are mothers, there are families who need to learn healthy cooking options and how this could bless our neighborhood and galvanize and allow us to be a benevolent force in our community. But I was afraid to ask for money, afraid to call people, afraid to to issue the challenge, and guess what I'm going to do this week? Don't answer your phone if I call you, right? But this one thing, this one thing, I believe God wants us to do this kitchen and this community room to bless our neighborhood. Do not answer your phone this week. But this one thing is what I will be doing. I believe God's called me to it. So this one thing, if you're ever there, it's something in your life, it's effort and it's focus and it's passion. And Paul says, and let me, let me draw this contrast real quick. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it was Paul. I don't think it was. But in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Be careful unless you drift. Now Paul says, this one thing I press on. I press forward. Not looking back, I'm pressing forward. I'm going forward. I'm pressing forward. Pressing is different than drifting. And drifting seems fun, doesn't it? There's a song from the 70s. They still play it a lot today. Give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and and drift away. Now, that just sounds good. That's a turn it up kind of song. I want to drift away, and it's good when you're on vacation. It's good when you're floating down the lazy river, right, at that resort or that river. It's good to drift at times on vacation, but it's not good to drift in life. And here's what I'm saying to say to you. For some of you, you think, Some of you think, oh, I just wish I could get rid of this regret. I just hope that my guilt and shame will be gone. This bitterness and this rage that I feel, I hope I'll wake up and it'll be gone. And guess what? Newsflash, that's not likely to happen. You don't drift into that. This one thing, you press on toward it. And Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Now hear me, I really want you to hone in on this because there's a lot of misunderstanding among Jesus' followers with this. When Paul says forgetting what lies behind, he is not saying I erase it from my memory. Here's what I want to tell you today. God doesn't erase your past, he redeems your past. I was uh, bumped into a woman a couple of weeks ago, she doesn't go to our church, so I'm free to talk about her. And as we were talking, she was telling me that she met a man, she married the man, and she had hoped that this man would meet all of her needs and make her happy, but he didn't. She said, he didn't, uh, he left me alone, and I am miserable. And in talking to her, it only took a few minutes to realize that she was a black hole of unmet emotional needs. She was miserable and she was mad. Mad at him, mad at men in general, mad at God who thought them up. And I asked her, well, what do you want? And she said, another man. And I thought, I didn't say it, but I thought, why would God give you another man 
When this, this is how it ended with the last one. Here's what I want to say to you today. Because there's a whole lot of second marriages that end up looking like the first one. What I want to say to you today is that when you, when you, when you look at your past and you look at your present, the common denominator is you. So ask God to work on you before you ask God to give you him or her or that. You are the common denominator. So you need, in order to let go, it's not like, oh, I just forget, like there's some magical moment, like you're doing that little eraser thing, right, and you shake it, and it's gone. That's not God. That's not life. That's not spiritual life. That's not life in following Jesus. I want to say it again, that God does not erase your past. He redeems it. And for you, in order to let go, you have to look, and you have to learn. You have to look, and you have to learn. There's a statement, it is very odd, in the Bible, in Proverbs 26, 11, and it says this, as a dog returns to its what? Say it. That's kind of mean that I made you say that. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Doesn't it make you wonder today, like, why the word vomit? Did a seventh grade boy write this verse? God did, through a man, and the word is deliberately chosen. The word is deliberately chosen because it is appalling, it is painful, it is a terrible thing. It is gross when you go back and repeat the same things in your life. It is vomit when you go back and you go back to the same thing that held you back. Paul says this one thing, forgetting what lies behind me and pressing on to what he has for you have you let God have you let him redeem your past somebody really almost everybody has something in their past that they can't get past I want to share with you in the balance of our time what we call the circle of bad. If you're a note taker, draw a better diagram that I've just drawn and write at the top the circle of bad, I'm calling it. And in this is a name, the first circle here, the first part of the circle is a name, when I was in college, a name of an intramural basketball team I knew, my bad. And it's easy to say, if you have my basketball skills, athletic prowess, you have to say my bad a lot. So why not just put it on your shirt and point, right? My bad, it's easy to say it on a basketball court, right? But it's really hard for us, particularly men, to say this in life, to really own it. But my bad, my bad is when you have, you have regret in your life. You have, you have sin. It's the wrong that you do. And it's not just in your past, it's in your present. The King James, you got to give King Jimmy some love sometimes. King Jimmy says at one point that we should lay aside the besetting sin. I love that phrase, the besetting sin. A church historian named Ignatius calls it a signature sin. And he says that we should be open to pray, God, help me see my sin and help me feel sorrow for my sin. And when you feel sorrow for your sin, you will be able to say, my bad. 
Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, there's a prayer that I encourage you to pray. I've been praying it a lot in my life lately. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. There it is. God, help me see. And here's the thing. Sometimes, sometimes I don't see me. Sometimes I don't see my sin. Again, privately, what is the besetting sin in your life? What is that signature sin? You want to know mine? Would I be brazen and bold enough to stand in front of hundreds of people and tell you my, my most besetting sin? I'm going to. I'm going to tell you what it is. For me, I just help around the house too much. Susan's in the nursery. Don't tell her about this part of the sermon illustration. But I just, I help around the house so much that other people aren't able to do anything. Just everything, I do it. And that's my signature sin. No, for real, my signature sin is love of self. My signature sin leads to people pleasing and image management and making you at times think I have it all together. I'll give you an example. A few times recently, or well, one of you, you're likely here this morning, somebody in our church has been here at the office, and let's say the appointment is at 10 o'clock, and you'll pull up at 10 o'clock or 9.58, and you'll text me, or Tammy will, and she'll say, you'll say, I'm here, or she'll say, hey, so-and-so's here, and I will respond with a text saying, I've done this more than a couple times, and I'll say, hey, I'm pulling up. And the truth has been, I'm at my house. But it's not a terrible sin because it's not as bad as some of your sins, right? Because my house is right there. So in a way, I'm pulling up. I mean, it takes about 120 more seconds to pull up. So is it that bad of a sin? Is it like a really lie-lie, a go-to-hell kind of lie? Or is it one of those white ones that we can all just look past? And I think to myself, well, you know, I'm, I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm generous in my tithes and offerings. I'm industrious in my work habits. I usually do what I say I'm going to do. So what's this little text, right? And the truth is, I should tell the truth. The truth is, I should say, hey, I'm not there, and I'll be there in a few minutes. In fact, I forgot we had an appointment. You're really not that important to me, <laughs> right? I should tell the truth, but I don't. I don't fully tell the truth. And here's what I'm saying. Guys, you know this. You, you, you watch Gruden's football camp. And what does John Gruden do? He's going to be the coach of the Raiders this year, I guess. But what does he do in every good coach do? They review film for hours. In fact, they neglect their families in order to review film. And the idea there is I'm getting paid blank million dollars a year to win. And 80 to 100,000 people are going to watch me on Sunday, Saturdays, whatever. And I really need to get this right. I'm going to review what we did right and what we did wrong. I'm going to look at the other team. I'm going to review and I'm going to think of the details so I can pursue excellence. How many of us review? How many of us look at a tape? How many of us think about our day and reflect on it and say, God, search me and know my heart. Reveal to me. Show me what I do not see. And a lot of times, it is my bad. A couple of years ago, some of you are going to know who I'm talking about. A couple of years ago, an NFL player was caught on tape, standing on a table, saying offensive, degrading things about women. And in a press conference, there was a swirl of negative media attention, as you can imagine. And in a press conference later, the athlete said this, well, I just got to deal with this adversity. No. No, that's, that's my bad. 
Helen Keller has to deal with adversity. Abraham Lincoln had to deal with adversity. Nelson Mandela had to deal with adversity. Jackie Robinson had to deal with adversity. That's a, that's a my bad. And the only way, listen, the only way out of my bad, the only way out of this past into a joyous future of generosity and gratitude and vital living, the only way past my bad, the Bible has a word for it, and it is the word repent. It is saying, God, I see my sin now, and I own my sin. I am sorrowful for it, and everything in me wants to forsake it. In addition to my bad, there is your bad. And hear me, this is not your fault. Someone betrayed you. You're a victim. Someone insulted you. Someone harmed you. It's not your fault. But are you going to let what they did to you in your past determine your future? Will you let the poison that they placed in you, will you let it remain? Will it sit? Will it stay there? Your bad. The only way out of your bad. The Bible has a word for it. And some of you don't want to hear it this morning. But it's the word forgive. And it's the only way out of your bad. And let me free some of you up because you need to hear this. Forgive does not mean. It does not necessarily mean. Let me put it that way. It does not necessarily mean to re-enter the relationship. And it does not necessarily mean that that person deserves your forgiveness. But to forgive says, God, you've got this gift and they have put me in a prison. But because I exercise this gift in your word that's true, I forgive and I am released out of this prison. And I may not re-enter the relationship and don't if it's toxic. And they don't necessarily deserve it. But you're surrendering. God, I surrender my right to get even. I give up my desire for revenge. I forgive them. Colossians 3.13 and another letter at a similar time frame in history. Paul would write this in this verse. Colossians 3.13. It's coming up. It says the following. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave Like, let that verse fall over you today. I grew up with a mom and a dad and a sister. That was it, family of four. My sister, uh, I don't talk about her that much. She says we're not as close and that it's my fault. But she's uh, only 18 months older than me. And when we were young, apparently we were close. And there was she and I and a friend of hers, a gal named Renee. And the three of us apparently were together one day when we were all really little. And my sister did something... um, just terrible. And she did something against me that was insulting and hurtful. And in a matter of moments, apparently as a little boy, I went over to her and I threw my arms around my sister Gina and I said, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And I just gave her a big hug and I patted her on the back. What a great little guy I was. 
And honestly, I don't even remember this, but it was recounted to me this summer. And this friend told me that she grew up in a family where everybody's fighting, where there are angry altercations, ugly words, and never, not, not once, never, ever did she ever see someone apologize or seek forgiveness. And she said, I didn't know that people could do that. Some people never really get this. And they're 40 and 50 and 85 and 93 years old. You can forgive and if you do and when you do and I know it you will be released from the prison the joyless prison of your past when you do my bad your bad Mike is playing music I've got to hurry the final bad in the circle of bad is it's bad you see this coming it's not your sin it's not what someone else did it's just bad. The Bible says there's only one way out of it's bad. And it's the word we do like. It's the word hope. It's the only way. Philippi was a colony of Rome, and in Rome, Romans chapter 5, Paul says, suffering comes to everybody. But suffering can have its effect. Suffering can produce endurance, and endurance can produce character. He calls it proven character. And proven character can produce, anybody know? Hope. And then he says something that's the greatest of all. He says, hope doesn't disappoint because God's love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. You will hope in things, and you will hope in people. I'm 51 years old. I know a lot more than some of you. I have hoped in and hoped in and hoped in and hoped in, and every hope disappoints, but there is one that will ultimately not fail you, and it points to His love, God's love. It is bad, but the only way out is hope. Now, some of us suffer, and some of us have suffered immensely. Man, I was moved the other night. I believe it was Wednesday night. I caught my wife watching ESPN. Always a good thing. Like, men, aren't you jealous? Like, I walked into the room, and Susan was watching ESPN. She was watching the ESPYs. And it was that moment they were giving out the Jim Valvano Award. And if you saw this, you know what I'm about to talk about. Jim Kelly, the former Miami Hurricanes quarterback and Super Bowl, four-time Super Bowl quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, was given the award. And Jim Kelly and his wife... Jill lost a little boy named Hunter. He was born with some maladies, with some deformities, and about eight or nine years old, he breathed his last breath. More recently in his own life, he diagnosed with throat cancer. If you watch the ESPYs, you know it was tough to listen to him talk. But he talked about his wife and he talked about his daughters and he talked about his little boy who is in heaven and he talked about his great God. And here's something I'm going to put before you that every philosopher and every thinker, religious and otherwise, we grapple with and we wrestle with. And when, every, when something tough happens, we have to decide if it's true and you have to decide if it's true for you. But the difference is this, when we suffer and when it's bad, we can go down into the suffering. And some people... They survive, 
And some people can do more than survive. They can begin to recover. But there are some, and I believe Jim Kelly is one of them. I believe America got to see one the other night. Jim Kelly is one where we're not just going to recover. We're going to thrive in it. And the, the thing, the one thing that determines whether you can thrive or not in the midst of suffering is whether or not there's any meaning behind it. Whether you can have hope. Everybody has something in their past they just can't seem to get past. For you to experience present joy, you're going to need past grace. His grace. For you to say this one thing, I press on to the goal of the high calling that is in Christ. I forget the things that lie behind me. I'm not erasing them, but I'm going to look at them. I'm going to learn from them, and I'm going to be able to let go in His grace. Would you stand with me? And I want to pray over us today.